From Gimlet Media, this is The Nod, a podcast about Black culture brought to you by Blackness's biggest fans. I'm Eric Eddings. The past few years have felt like a renaissance for Black TV. There's Blackish, Insecure, The Shy, Queen Sugar, Atlanta, Black Lightning, and many, many more. They're all just sprinkled out across network, cable, and streaming channels. It's really, really exciting, even though I still feel like it's not nearly enough. I feel this way because I remember a hallowed, glorious time when TV was black as hell. In 1997, there were 15, 15 black TV comedies spread out over primetime network TV alone. That's just comedy. It was heaven. On any given night, my family sat down to watch Mark. Family Matters. Sister, Sister. Moesha. Hanging with Mr. Cooper. Smart Guy. Malcolm and Eddie. Living Single. I'm just going to stop because it would seriously take too long to list them all. This boom kicked off with The Cosby Show in 1984. But by the early 2000s, Black TV had nearly been erased from our TV screens. And the disappearance of those shows also meant the disappearance of the actors who starred in them. Actress Erica Alexander was one of those stars. She got her start in theater, and she landed her breakout role on The Cosby Show. After that, she co-starred on another classic black sitcom, Living Single. Yeah, what if we lose, Max? Lose? (laughs) Khadija, I am Maxine Shaw, attorney at law. I lose weight. I lose patience. If you keep working my nerves, I may lose my mind, but I do not lose cases. So you just get your butt used to leather, because you're coming home from court in a Lexus. But after the end of Living Single, all Erica could get were guest spots, and then just bit parts. Things got so bad that she was forced to declare bankruptcy. She lived through the boom, bust, and now resurrection of Black TV. Hell, her career practically charts it. I invited Erica into the studio to find out what it was like to work during a golden age of Black TV what it's like to see it disappear, and how she's fighting her way back. One of the first things she mentioned was that before the Cosby show, the roles she was being offered were hard to get excited about. Prostitute, the slave, the foster kid. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those are my three first roles. Gotcha. (laughs) Not in that order. I'm not even kidding you. I was, yeah. It's like a bingo card. It really (laughs) was like check, 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 check. But you were not the ingenue. Mm. And and that was the problem because um, black people were not seen as things to be saved, cherished, and huh. or regarded as an object of desire. Yeah. And I was not only black, I was dark skinned, I had nappy hair. So yeah. anything that I did had to be usually very serious or I was be crying yeah. or suffering and, and that sucked. What was the role that you wanted to play that you could have dreamed of playing? Um, I wanted to be... Juliet. I wanted to be the things that I saw on television growing up. Um, I wanted to be, you know, Gidget. Those roles didn't exist and they barely exist now for black people. But if they do, it's because it's been a a long, hard road of sort of appealing to the, um, 
I don't know, less to the narcissistic nature of the white male gaze. Sure, yeah. And more to the inclusive nature of what it is to be a woman and more importantly, what it is to be desired. Mm, yeah. So one of the first big roles you did get was Cousin Pam on The Cosby Show. She was supposed to be that uh, cousin from the uh, other side of the tracks who went to live with the Huxtables. Mm-hmm. I've been thinking about what you said about us all being family. And? <laughs> and to clarify the Sharon thing. Exactly what does that include? You mentioned the TV. Right. And the phone. Right. And the food in the car. Right. No, not the car. <laughs> A part of me has a picture in my mind of what it must be like to be on this, like the biggest show, the biggest show on TV. I know me, a part of me would be insufferable, you know, just in the sense of like. (laughs) You're insufferable now, Eric. It's true, you know, especially if you ask Brittany. But but I'm wondering, like, is there a moment, a conversation you had with someone where you were just like, yo, this is kind of crazy. Like, I'm on The Cosby Show with Bill Cosby, who at the time was that guy. Is there anything for you that illustrates like that feeling? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> the people I was working with, like Caramelina White and Pay- uh, Alan Payne, mm-hmm. we were all just sort of sitting there like, didn't want to fuck it up. Yeah. <laughs> I pressure. mean, he set us down and told us what our duty was to the race. We wow. had to the race to not, you know, to not embarrass ourselves, to not play the fool or yeah. the, the, you know, the, oh, 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 you know, what's yeah. that, the coon, yeah. none of that. And we were like, got it. Now, in my mind, I'd never done that. Sure. But she, he was just saying, don't let this comedy fall into that. That's a ton of pressure. I mean, y'all were young. Like, <laughs> what? This is crazy pressure. It's hard to be funny around that. Yeah. That's one of the reasons why I didn't think that I did so well on that show, because I was Cousin Pam who came to shake things up. And the first thing I was told was, make sure you, this is the the track, don't step over it. And I thought I was there to do that. And I was going to do it in a way that I thought had integrity, because I never thought about not having integrity. But the fact that I could be suddenly judged by the man, the paramount of what is black and integrity and how not to be a coon and he doesn't curse in his shows and all the other stuff yeah. was really a heavy thing. And I, I, I got to tell you that it makes you silent. But it also, like, in a direct way, it changes your circumstances, right? Probably with some sort of financial boost at, at that point as There's well. There's a financial boost. Um, yes, I come from a very, you know, simple background. And we had needs. And my family was um, in a real sort of... A hard situation. So my father had already had several heart attacks and was mm-hmm. dying. Oh. So a lot of what I experienced on God's show, even monetarily, I was very happy to to help my family. So I bought the house and um, just financial things that you just should do. I was like, okay, here, here, here. And you, you don't have any sense that it's going to end either. Everyone's in the same boat, from Caramelina White to Al Payne. We were all sort of new money people. I was just like, oh, okay, there'll be more coming. Sure. Because everyone kept saying how good I was. Yeah. So I thought that it would keep going. It seems common knowledge that like, the success of The Cosby Show kind of opened up these, these additional doors for Black programming. Like, how much of that were you also observing? And how much of a, like, how much of a role did you think you could even play with that? It was huge. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, there's no doubt about it. I never saw anything like it. But it was also within a moment where Spike Lee was huge. And then there was Robert Townsend. And there were all these people creating their own space mm-hmm. and saying it with their own voice. Because Cosby's show was not only big, it was sophisticated. Mm-hmm. It had nuance. Yeah. Looking at that as a young actress and, so, and being surrounded by that, it informed me when you're starting to see that you're among the best like you're sitting next to them, yeah. then you're saying, well, why not me? Yeah. But there's a difference between seeing it happen and actually making it happen. And so, you know, me and, and Carolina White, mm-hmm. she played Charmaine on The Cosby Show. You know, we would joke that we, we, if we were rappers, we'd get more play. Yeah. Because the music business took off. And at that time, white Hollywood did not give money to anything outside of hip-hop. It was right around the time that New Jack City and all these, again, music was huge, you know. And at the time, there was, you know, rappers doing well from MC Light to, you know, Salt and Pepper. And they were getting the roles, too. We wanted to be rappers so we could be actors. We got a deal with Mercury Records. Wow. Yes. I was bass E and she was treble K. And we were the (laughs) (laughs) We were the players. Okay. Yes. And um, we got this deal and we even laid down some tracks. Uh Uh-huh. And... uh, our first uh, record was called Rapsploitation. I mean, I, don't, I, I hate to do this to you, but if if I had to ask you for a hot 16, <laughs> is that, is, do you feel like, short, <laughs> is there right? something you could deliver? Oh, yeah. So on this record, we're supposed to be, you know, going at each other. So we said, you know, you used to be a time you used to play the dozens. So uh, my rap goes like this. The sun had set on a jet black limo, smoke tent windows. It looked like a benzo. In walked the treble, no bigger than a pebble. Glittered like a diamond or a precious metal. Crowds gathered around and it started getting bigger. Looking at the flavor with the fever and the figure. Was she all that like a rose in a pot? Bustier pumped up boobs, not. Scratching up backs with nails courtesy of Lee. Trying to be all she can be with the army. A deep dark diva. Fellas had knocked her. And if you rocked her... Go see the doctor. <laughs> and That's Bandy C, baby. So you said I, I still got it, huh? Yeah, man. <laughs> he was out in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. He wrote that. And he was part of a real group. And then Karen would come in and do her part. That's amazing. That's amazing. We were going to do it, and that deal fell through. Yeah. But I, I think, I'll be honest with you, I'm okay with that because <laughs> not too, it seems like not too long after that, you got Living Single, right? That's right. She went over to Different World, uh-huh. and I did Living Single a year after that. I mean, honestly, you were... Your forecast was right because I mean you joined that show with another rapper turned sure actor. Did. I sure did. Queen Latifah. That's right. You played everyone's favorite mooch, Maxine Shaw, attorney at law. What's up, baby girl? Today my look and my law were fierce. I got my client the house, the Winnebago, alimony, and 70% of all the assets he tried to conceal. I left that man with nothing but a lint ball and half a tic tac. Don't touch me unless you want to get burned! For me, I mean, I think for a lot of folks, like, Max, that character, it felt pretty different than a lot of the, than, than a lot of the representation of black women kind of at the time. Like, I'm curious, for you, like, what might have appealed to you about the character of Max? Um, you know, nobody was checking for me on that show. Hmm. So it gave me a lot of room mm-hmm. to just do whatever I wanted. So there's nobody looking for me to make the show. They had Queen Latifah. They had Kim Coles from Living Color. And they had Tootie. Yeah. Kim Fields, you know, the veteran. I'm playing a version of my sister, my older sister, Carolyn, mm-hmm. who is, to me, the looniest person I know <laughs> on the planet Earth. You know, the gunny, 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 the sort of like wild energy. Yeah. And I, when I say it's offbeat. 
because I'm I'm I I had this you know mini skirt on sure. and you know I would jump up on furniture and do all these things that I wanted. But I, I'm a person from Arizona. I yeah. grew up in the wild, so it, it didn't seem so weird to me to ignore the furniture and to ignore the to ignore the grammar and the periods and the commas. Mm-hmm. They were in my way. I just sort of said things the way I wanted to, and then it became you know the character. Well, it was bound to happen. Eventually, we all get crushed by the male libido. I was in love once. <laughs> Max, please, don't tell the story again. Then when my career got on track and his didn't, he just up and left. Just packed his little raggedy duffel bag and left. Also, you know, I admired um, a lot of strong men. So that sort of laid back, sort of like open leg mm-hmm. thing you see yeah. about Max. Yeah, she was always like relaxed. Like she just, it was the ownership to it. Yeah, yeah. it's her testosterone. Yeah. And she's a hefty, healthy version of it without losing her femininity. And that, I think, is a combination. And I think that's what people liked, that she had she had approached her sensuality and her sexuality like a man, mm-hmm. but she was in control of it like a woman. And she wasn't afraid of it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I've never heard uh, Max described like that. That's it, it makes so much sense. Me like you can kind of like pick. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So it's kind of an interesting time. Like in '98, Living Single ended its run, and by then, many of the classic shows that people remember from that time, like it's like like Martin, Fresh Prince, Family Matters, they have kind of already ended their run, been canceled or winding down. Yeah. It's also around the time when black shows were starting to be kind of concentrated on two networks. That's There's the WB and UPN. What did it feel like to be working at that time? You know, we were paired with The Martin Show when we first came out. Mm-hmm. And Living Single, um, I think, off its first or second night, did so well. Ratings were just as well or better. Yeah. Um, then we were on Sunday nights, and then they created a Thursday night sort of block mm-hmm. of black shows. It was Martin, us, New York Undercover. Uh-huh. And I could start to see, at least in my opinion, that we were going into a cultural ghetto. Hmm. And it worried me because up until that point, everything that I had been involved in, including the Cosby show, was in the mainstream. It just happened to have black cast. Suddenly we were black shows. So it felt really weird to be working in that time because you couldn't almost plot your next move without thinking, how they, again, yeah. what version of blackness am I am now? Mm-hmm. And will I be able to transcend this again? And, and, and to what? Yeah. The only person who did it that I saw was Will Smith. Hmm. Will Smith transcended his show yeah. to become Independence Day. Mm-hmm. So... um you could start to see the walls close in on us. After the break, what Erica Alexander had to do to survive when the bottom fell out of black TV. And I got this call from a producer and he just ringed me out. You'll never work in this town. You'll never do this and that. How dare you? Boom, boom, boom. And I had never received a call like that in my life. Welcome back. So by the late 90s, roles were already starting to disappear for Black actors. And Erica Alexander was feeling pretty anxious about what that meant for her. My manager gave me a call and uh, she said, um, Hi, Erica, this is a hard call to make. Of course, my heart starts beating because I've always, my heart started beating whenever an agent called. I I think I have some kind of panic. It's just that 
fear that my life will suddenly change with whatever comes out of their mouth. Wow, yeah. And she goes, um, I got to tell you that, um, you know, your agency has, you know, let you go. I'm like, let me go. <laughs> like, I let them go. What are yeah. you talking about? I'm going to make money for them. And, um, you know, it's one of those things that the person that was representing you went to a different agency and they just can't find anybody that, in this, this is the word, to get excited about you. Wow. That's a really low moment. Yeah. You know, that's like sort of being put out to pasture. I am just getting ready to come into probably the most money-making years of what I think a career could be for me. Suddenly, I'm no longer viable or valuable. Wow. You... You can't imagine. None of the big agencies ever wanted me. Yeah. They never saw me as being valuable. But I can't say they ever saw many black women being valuable, you know. So it was Jada Pinkett, Nia Long, and those types. And that's all they wanted. And then once they had those one or two, you can forget about getting in there. But everything was packaged through those big agencies. And if you weren't a part of it, that means you were outside the packaging. So when people would say, well, why didn't you work more? It's because those roles are already taken, given. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not getting any offers and or getting any, um, an audition. Mm-hmm. And, and so I'm curious, like, how much of that, how much did you feel was everybody or just you? Like, I'm sure it was more widespread than I knew. And then maybe it's a black woman thing. You labor alone. Hmm. You don't want to look like you're complaining. You suck it up and you keep moving. You only find out that your sisters out there are having the same difficulty or even worse because you see them on a show and you go, God, I never knew. And, you know, what what I would have done, you know, or how could I have helped? Yeah. But the truth is you want to project that you're still alive and viable. Yeah. More importantly, you also want to project that it's not getting you down or getting to you. And there's no room for conversation. You see these people in audition every, like, three or four months. Mm-hmm. And it's only for a few minutes where they go, girl, we got to talk. Woo, it's hard out there. Woo, it's hard out here. Yeah, see, yeah. bye. And you leave. In this kind of in this period after, like, what were you being offered? Like, what were you going out for? Well, I mean, I was I got into the Mama Flores family. Uh, that was a mini series that came just after Living Single, mm-hmm. part of the Roots mm. anthology. Gotcha. It's the last one. It follows Mama Flora, F- young Flora, mm-hmm. who I play, uh, through slave time, where she's actually um, as a servant Mm. or a slave to a black man, played by Shamar Moore. The unforgettable story of a courageous woman. My name is Lincoln. My name's Flora. You ain't the first, and you ain't gonna be the last. And um, I did the audition, and they really wanted me to do it, but I found out, because agents talk to you, that the the amount I was going to be paid was going to be less than many of the other... um, actors on there, including Queen Latifah, frankly, who was playing the granddaughter, and I was playing the title role with Cecily Tyson. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'd had also the success of Living Single. So I wanted my money, the money I was paid to be reflected. That you earned. Close. It wasn't even nowhere near close. It was like not even half the amount. I passed. I said, no, thank you. And I got this call from a producer, and he just reamed me out. You'll never work in this town. You'll never do this and that. How dare you? Boom, boom, boom. And I had never received a call like that in my life. Mm-hmm. It rattled me. Yeah. And I remember shaking visibly when I got off the phone and not really knowing what to do because it was like a bully move. Mm-hmm. But also, um, I didn't understand how saying no to something could suddenly make you a target. Yeah. That somebody would want to ruin your career. They end up coming up more. Mm-hmm. And I went to do the role. 
we filmed in Atlanta and Georgia mm-hmm. and and I end up having a, a mental breakdown. Um, I'm so sorry to hear that. I know that must have been a really tough time. Mm-hmm. Can you share? Like, this is the part you you never hear from the people you see on screen. This is the this is the part you never know. Emotional work is 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 its own sort of being vulnerable and allowing yourself to be laid bare. Mm-hmm. Use your experience and your body and your emotions to give over to a thing, an entity, a character someone else created as its own, and then the combination being, you know, mm-hmm. what, what they film. Say, yeah. At the time, I wouldn't have known it, but up until that point, I think I kind of always resented that people thought that that came with no cost, hmm. and they thought it came easy. Yeah. My baby. Your baby? My baby. I lost my baby. And so there I was, and I was on a train, and I was playing this character, uh, you know, and she's just lost her baby, and she's on a train, mm-hmm. and she's emotionally broke down about it. And I went completely numb. Mm-hmm. I was in the hold where you go down off the, the uh, train, off the steps, mm-hmm. and if you know, that's a very slim passage, and the, the camera's above me. Every take took a long time to set up. Yeah. You could kind of stay in that space for all day. Mm-hmm. And um, I went numb. And I remember saying, I don't really feel anything. I don't even feel like I'm here. Yeah. And I panicked. After one or two takes, I got up and I got past the camera and I ran to hair and makeup, which was in one of the cabooses and back set up. And I remember stumbling in there and falling at their feet and saying, I can't feel anything. I can't feel anything. And and I don't know what's happening to me. And I kept pinching myself. And I... Like looking at them, I must my eyes must have been like rolling. Mm-hmm. And they were like, it's okay, it's okay, care, okay, get some water, get some water. Even through all that, I couldn't make myself feel anything. Yeah. I'd never gone numb in my life. I'd always been able to transcend and actually perform. And I couldn't perform. Somehow I got through this the shooting and I got back to the uh to the base camp and everything just poured out of me. And I was just sobbing. Somehow Cecily Tyson found out and he knocked on my door and said, she wants to see you. And I'm like, oh, God, I'm weak. Well, sure. You know, this is embarrassing. Yeah. And I go in and uh, she says, why didn't she was mad at them, the PAs? Why did they bring me to you? Yeah. Why, and and I couldn't speak. And she said, um, Erica, breathe. Hmm. Like, just breathe. And... She was had all these plans that she wanted me to move into her condo with her. And she was going to take over my, you know, whatever, and we're going to do this and that. And I said, no, man, I can't do that. But I, uh, she did work through it with me. Mm-hmm. And I spent my days in my hotel room in complete silence, hoping that my acting talent wasn't totally suborned and or dismissed or go away from me. Mm-hmm. And I spent every time I came on set, my legs were shaking and we had the long skirts. And if you could, if you remove the skirt, you would have seen me shaking. Mm-hmm. I would press my my fear down in my legs and I finished the um the production like by the hair of my chinny chin but then from then 15 years on had a fear of going on set wow I, so, there's like so many things in that in that story it's so powerful like you're talking to this you're talking to this woman's line of an actress who has had this like amazing career, even at that point. And she's telling you to breathe. You know, this is not, I'm not talking to Cecily Tyson, but I was like, bitch, please. I was like, I am breathing. I am breathing. I don't know how hard I can breathe. I can't take breathing no more. 
You know, but I have to say that one thing, breathe, is literally what I put in my head at any point now. She was right. Mm-hmm. At the beginning of humanness is the breath. And an actor must breathe to allow themselves to be vulnerable, to let go. And I had shut down so in so many ways. I had rage in me, pure, unadulterated rage. Mm-hmm. I was mad I hadn't gotten what I thought I should be paid in life or any offers after, say, living single. It couldn't get in any larger agency to be packaged the way I saw Halle Berry and all these other people, or you're not light, you're not this, you're not that. There were so many things I wasn't. I was failing, but the one thing I could do was act, and I couldn't do that anymore. I imagine it was, that, that's got to be terrifying. This is it was a- awful. I knew I wasn't doing what I was capable of, and the fear was is that I never would be able to return. I'm curious, like, how, how much do you feel like other Black actresses were also going through a similar thing at this time. Like, you're using the the real feelings, the pain, the anger, the rage that you have to channel that into these roles. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious, like, how much do you, I mean, how much do you think that that might have been something that many other people were going through, too? Probably a lot of them were. Uh, what we're talking about is fear. Hmm. Just, just plain fear. I think that one of the people that I th- at least thought had a platform to talk more about it was Oprah. Mm-hmm. I think that her acting talent was something that she was trying to make sure that, you know, she was on par with other people. You know, you know, like, because she was coming from being a host, where would she have to go to hit those notes yeah. as an actress? And at least I appreciated that people were interested in asking her. When I tell you people didn't ask black women nothing, mm. they certainly didn't think that we had a process. And by the time... They started to think about it, like Angie Bassett was getting her ass whooped and <laughs> what's love got to do yeah. with it. And Halle Berry was just getting the Oscar and start to really see us as the force of natures we are. We are because we often took those really hard roles. The hard roles aren't the, usually the male roles. Yeah. But the roles they give the hard work to are usually black women mm-hmm. and women of color. You will be destroyed in that role yeah. because that role is everything that they put on blackness. So then they always come to you like, oh, you're the center of the show. What that meant was, thank you very much. We'll pay you very little to do the most. Yeah. And you definitely don't have a process. Exactly. Because you're just automatically magical and full of soul. (laughs) You give away a piece of yourself in everything. It's like you shed a skin. And you hope that what's underneath is ready to be, you know, felt and touched. And often it isn't because you haven't examined yourself. Whew. I mean, what you're saying is exactly right. Like Angela Bassett, for example, when she played Tina Turner, you heard a celebration of the role, but you didn't necessarily hear an in-depth discussion of her process and all the work that actually might have went into accomplishing that. Actually, right. They wanted to know how she got her muscles and how she does the dance moves. You were buff. Your stuff. arms looked great. Yes. So soon after that, just to kind of orient us in time— okay. Uh, by the early aughts, you know, those two networks where most of the black characters on TV were, UPN and the WB, they merged and became the CW. And then the CW started making shows that were mostly mostly white teen dramas. Yes. So, yeah, if you were a witch or you were, <laughs> you know, a, a, a bad girl who was rich, yeah. you, you were suddenly, you know, in vogue. Um, and... Um, no, it was it was over. That was it was over. Yeah. It was over. So they successfully segregated television after the two thousands, and 
that was crazy. Yeah. Because we had created, we had made billions for them and had been successful. It just shows you how strong, like if racism is a rubber band, it would like to go back to its original position. And it's interesting, too, because like you mentioned, it, it, didn't necess- it wasn't necessarily like these shows weren't doing well. Like, you know. We were doing excellent. Yeah. And so it, it doesn't necessarily seem like there's a, like a, like some sort of strong monetary thing. It just seemed no, like a choice. We, from syndication on, we were um, a success. I'm sure that we made, and I've been told that we made more money than most because they were in the black the entire time. So they're doing the show for a very small a fraction of what, say, a friend's might take. There are shows that were much more expensive just on the face of it. And no one's telling you how valuable you are. And I don't even think they acknowledge how valuable that is to them. It's just the thing is, if if something is seen as disposable, Mm -hmm. they will throw you away, even if they're making money off of it. Yeah, that feels real as hell. Coming back to you, though, like you're still working during this time. But the opportunities were clearly few and far between. Like, how did that affect you? Like, I'm curious, even financially, I imagine that it was a oh, hard time. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. I mean, um, it wasn't shortly after that that everything started being defunded. Mm-hmm. And they weren't making much of anything with any person of color. And you couldn't get even a guest job. And uh, you're living only on residuals when they come in, however they come in. And I went bankrupt. And I went bankrupt not buying cars and all that stuff, but yeah. just trying to pay off the mortgage and that type of thing. And so um, I had to give up my mother's house and sell that off and I declare bankruptcy. And you see how it's so interesting that a person who of means, yeah. that would be me, and, of, and who had options slips very quickly through the cracks. And then suddenly you're facing eviction notices yourself and don't know what to do and don't know what to turn to. So much of that speaks to kind of like, honestly, the, what feels like the precariousness of, you know, Black success. Like, you just never quite feel far enough that it it can't slip away. It's like, yeah. I'm curious for you, like, what were the things that helped you to kind of like push through in this moment? I started to write and create, like, and, and forget started to write. I had started writing before, but I started to take the, have the discipline to write mm-hmm. and actually push through and finish things that I had started. But then at that time, the only thing I knew would change in my life was for me to take me seriously. Mm-hmm. And I started to write. And uh, my creative partner at the time was my husband. He's my ex-husband, his name is Tony Perrier. Mm-hmm. He'd written for all sorts of other people, scripts that had sit in people's shelves. And so we got together and we were going around selling a series that was called Concrete Park. Uh-huh. And cable had come in and fractured up everything. So there were new networks. And uh, we hit the road and took it out. And it was very hard to get people, executives, excited about anything that had a black face, let alone science fiction on it. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had a meeting with a president of a very major studio that changed the whole course of that history. After the break, the meeting that would lead Erica down a new path in Hollywood. Welcome back. So Erica and her then-husband and creative partner, Tony Purrier, had an idea for a TV show that was unlike anything they'd ever seen before. It was called Concrete Park, 
a sci-fi series with a diverse cast set in an alternate future where the Earth's poor and unwanted are sent to a distant planet to work in mines until they revolt. Erica and Tony landed a meeting with the head of a major TV studio to pitch Concrete Park. They needed a studio to fund the show. But the meeting went off the rails pretty quick. So we went into the meeting and we started to pitch the story and the guy stops us and says, let me stop you right there. He says, black people don't like science fiction because they don't see themselves in the future. <laughs> okay. That's what we do. <laughs> <laughs> we say, really? He said yes. And he told us the story about a movie that he made. After they made the movie, they had a focus testing. Yeah. There was a young man that was there, a black man who was just sort of looking at the screen and they came from behind their doors or whatever. And they said, sir, do you have anything to ask? And he said, yeah, I just want to know. How'd that nigga get to Mars? In front? Yeah. So he had taken from that one thing that black people couldn't see themselves in the future. Wow. And so Tony said, uh, well, let me tell you something about black people. He said, the past is painful, the present precarious, the future is free. Yeah. We always see ourselves in the future. We're the aliens that came from across the ocean to rock your world and make your planets twirl. Yeah. And he told them, he schooled them about Octavia Butler and Samuel Delaney and all these really cool people. And he was like, we were cosplaying before y'all even knew what it was about. Look at Funkadella, look yep. at James Brown. That's not, that's real. We are futurists because you didn't give us this place in the now. You took away our past. So the future is all we have. Dude didn't like it. Yeah. He was just upset. He starts pushing our stuff all around. And he said, and um, being very, you know, dismissive and what's that and what and so Tony said well now you calling my baby ugly mm. so he said come on Erica let's go and we stood up and we left and we were walking out of this place and he said fuck it I'll draw it, it and he started to draw what is now called Concrete Park wow so like wait so you you take this thing that in your mind is a TV show and right then you decide to make it a graphic novel like why is it so important to you to get this thing made? Because fuck him. That's why. I am hmm. not going up in nobody's place now, at this point, to be told by somebody the limitations of their imagination. Hmm. Because we've seen what their imagination has seen us as, monkeys, to be thrown in, in slavery, to be uh, marginalized and suppressed, to be outside of representation, to be dismissed after you make the money. And now you're telling us we can't see the future? No, you can't see the future. Yeah. And in fact, if you see a white face, you can best believe that's a closed door. Mm -hmm. It's the black face that makes you think any race that you could go through it. That's real. Yeah. You put, they think, oh, if you put more white people in it, more people will feel, you know, like it's open to them. You know, it'll be more mainstream. No, you put a white face on it, you close the door. Mm. Because most people think, that ain't for me. Yeah. You put a black person on it, people are like, wait a minute. Mm -hmm. How? Because you know that they went through hell to get there. So fuck him. And, and also, you know, at the time, ain't nothing to lose. Mm -hmm. You know, if you go bankrupt and you ain't got nothing, every dime you spend you know, is down to a meal, rent, and or gas. I'm not tripping on no dude talking about I'm not, can't see the future. Mm -hmm. I have to see the future. I've got to survive. Yeah. My now sucks. So it was about finding a different way to tell your story. We had to find a way to tell our story. We thought what we created was beautiful. Mm. And it deserved to live. 
And we did. We sent a few panels off. He sent a few panels off to Mike Richardson. Now, this is a white man who's used to seeing creators come to him Mm -hmm. with unusual ideas from Frank Miller to, um, you know, 300, Hellboy, Sin City, all that, and making dreams come true in a very simple form, comic books. And we thought, well, let's send it out and see what happens. And he sent us uh, something right back and said, I'd like to talk to you about publishing this. And then two years later, Forbes said we were one of the best graphic novels in America. If we had let that man tell us right then and there what our future was, we wouldn't have seen what was on the other end of that. Mm. And every day those things happen. This is what's happened to people with credits. Yeah. Having made millions and billions of dollars for the industry. And I work very hard now with everything I'm doing to try to address that because I think it's not only disgraceful, but it's untenable. Yeah, like, I know that conversation around Concrete Park happened, like, a while ago, but so much how you describe, like, what came after reflects this moment that I feel like we're in right now. Like, I think about Issa Rae, who made the Awkward Black Girl web series before creating Insecure with HBO. Um, or, Or Justin Simeon, who made a trailer that ultimately became the film and later TV show, Dear White People. Is, is this just what the game is now? Like, do you have to create and write your own projects to have ownership of the actual trajectory of your, like, TV career? Yes. You are the creator. You disappear. You Mm. will not be able to make it. Black people and people of color shouldn't be surprised that they have to do, me have to do 10 jobs, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But you have to do them well. Yeah. At least four of them well, not just okay. Very good. That's the exhausting part. Mm -hmm. If you are a person that is a disruptor, then you take the aches and pains too. Mm-hmm. And it ain't easy. And it's often a very isolating, lonely road. You may not break through, but that's courage. And I don't take it for granted. That 10 job thing Erica mentioned, I think she's almost there. She's raising money for her new company, Colorfarm Media. It's using technology to fund and create films and TV shows for Black audiences, with a couple already in production. She's writing on both of them. She's also gotten into political activism, and she's still acting. She's playing Riz's mom on a new drama about the rise of Wu-Tang Clan for Hulu. And it's exciting because she's on a path that's been great for a lot of other Black creators. She's trying to claim her place with folks like Shonda Rhimes, Lena Waithe, Donald Glover, and Issa Rae. People who create their own work, work that's powerful and unapologetically Black. And whatever Erica's next project is, I can't wait to watch. If you enjoyed this episode and want more Living Single Nostalgia, check out the episode titled To All the Boys in Rom-Coms Who Suck. In that episode, my esteemed colleague Brittany makes the argument for why the character of Overton from Living Single should be the standard for a rom-com leading man. You can find that episode on our website, gimletmedia.com slash the nod. Or you can listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. The Nod is produced by me, Eric Eddings, with Brittany Luce and Kate Parkinson Morgan. Our senior producer is Sara Abdurrahman. This episode was edited by Sarah Saracen. 
fact-checking by Soraya Shockley. The show is mixed by Cedric Wilson. Our theme music is by Khalid B. For additional music credits, check the show notes. 